Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Daphne Hilkiopolo who is a professor of comparative politics at the University of Reading, as well as the author of The Golden Dawn's Nationalist Solution, explaining the rise of the far right in Greece. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, you've been studying this area for quite a while now. How did you become interested in the far right? Okay, yeah, um, that's an interesting question. So I have indeed, I've been studying this for a long time before it became so topical, you know, with the rise of of populism across Europe. And I think the reason... The reason I started studying this is is really an an interest in nationalism that I've always had and an interest in in why people do extreme things, you know, in society. So so it it fascinates me why people would join these these kinds of organizations and, you know, why people would vote for parties that are clearly anti-establishment or clearly violent, uh, like the Golden Dawn that we'll talk about later. And I'm really interested also in the nationalist dimension of this. What is it in particular about this nationalist ideology or this nationalist narrative? if you like that appeals so much to to the to the public what, what have you discovered Daphne in terms of explaining the appeal of nationalism and does, is it the kind of thing that always lends itself to some kind of uh, extremist interpretation so interestingly enough to the contrary <laughs> and I think so maybe that, that that's a good way of starting the broad picture before we get into the golden dawn in fact my research has shown that the, the nationalism of the golden dawn is really the aberration or the exception of what is going on elsewhere in Europe. So, so my research focuses on on the far right or you know right wing populism in many different European countries, and at least in in the western part of Europe, what I've found is that those far right parties that tend to be more electorally successful are the ones that are moderating their image and utilizing what I call a civic type of nationalism in their narrative. So in essence, that means that instead of emphasizing, you know, the biological dimensions of national belonging, instead of saying, you know, we the nation are joined by ascriptive criteria, by things that we are born with, such as race or, you know, or, or, or creed, they basically turn it on its head and say, we just, we exclude on the basis of ideology. And we exclude those who are intolerant of us. So they, they utilize this form of civic nationalism, which means that they, they draw on liberal democracy and they say, well, our national identity is all about liberalism and liberal democratic institutions. And so we want to exclude those that don't adhere to these principles. And the Golden Dawn is a very interesting exception because it's among the very few 
ethnic nationalist parties in Europe that actually experienced uh, quite a sharp increase in electoral support. What then is the relationship, do you think, between the form of nationalism, as you've described it, and the phenomenon of populism, which seems to be uh, very commonly applied to a whole range of parties on the far right? Yes, and again, so that's the, another dimension of, of my research is, is the demand side, as we call it, in politics. So, you know, the actual voters or the societal triggers. And and my research suggests that these are not necessarily only nationalism related. So at the if we look at the popular base, I think, and perhaps contrary to so, what some some of the literature might suggest, I think that there is a very strong economic story there. So there are multiple grievances that 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 drive people to support these parties. Immigration itself is an example of that. I think immigration is used often as an example of a cultural grievance. But I disagree with that. I think immigration is a multifaceted grievance. People who have anti-immigrant attitudes might have them because they, you know, because they don't want the erosion of their national culture, fine. But there's also other people who are skeptical of immigrants because they see them as a competition in the labor market or they see they see them as, you know, as, as a potential for crime or instability or terrorism, etc. So at the societal base, there are indeed many people who vote for the far right who do so for, for non-cultural related reasons. And actually, my research has shown that these are the majority of the far right voters. So, you know, the, the cultural, the racist, if you like, voter is, is a minority. Is, is, they're very likely to vote for the far right, but they're a small group. The majority of the voters, the, the broad electoral base, is those that have multiple concerns. And for example, you know, they, they vote for the far right as a sort of a, also a protest or anti-establishment vote. But on the other hand, the nationalism dimension is, as I said earlier, it's in the supply. It is the, the ability of the parties themselves to put forward narratives that, that appeal to these multifaceted grievances that are driving voters. You've also recently co-authored a paper on welfare state policies and far-right party support. What did you discover uh, in your investigations? And I do recall that um, in discussions about the appeal of Trump in the United States, there was often, in terms of trying to explain his appeal, there was a, a very common reference to something called economic anxiety. I wonder if that's, you know, what does that have to do with the welfare state or addressing issues to do with the welfare state? And in your research, how do you go about distinguishing between, you know, one factor and the other? Is it, is it very much the case that people have one primary concern? Or as you said, you know, how do these different concerns overlap in terms of the, the broader electorate? Yeah, exactly. So, so I mentioned already the demand and supply side, as I call them, dimensions of my research, right? So the demand is the, the voters and their anxieties, if you like. The supply is the parties themselves and how they try to appeal to voters. And so the policy dimension that you just talked about comes sort of in the middle, right? So anxieties are are either mediated or exacerbated by certain policies. And so they have a role as well in how we vote. So what what we did in this paper that you mentioned is that we we looked at a range of insecure groups that have economic anxieties. And we, we employed a broad definition of that. So it's not just the unemployed, but it's a range of groups that are facing relative deprivation. So for example, we looked at uh, pensioners, we looked at um, large families, 
you know, people, people with, with children, with in-laid families. We looked at people who are permanently sick or disabled. Sort of, we looked at as well insiders and outsiders in the labor market. And then, and then we, we looked at the particular social policy that corresponds to their grievance. You know, so for example, for pensioners, that is, that is pensions, pension uh, benefits. For the unemployed, that is unemployment benefits. For the, for the sick or disabled, that is disability benefits. And there's also, obviously, for those in permanent contracts, this is employment protection legislation. So we looked at a broad range of groups and their corresponding policy, if you like. And we found, looking at Europe specifically, so we, we used, uh, we used a, a, a quite a, a well-known data set that looks at uh, European, European countries. And we found that indeed, for every single one of these policies, where the policy is generous and protective of the of the individual at risk, then these people are less likely to vote for the far right. So I think this shows, you know, it shows two things. It shows first that indeed economic anxieties are very important in understanding why um, why the far right vote has has increased recently. But it's also really important because it shows that institutions and, and, and governments have agency and they can prevent this, this rise of the far right from happening by actually protecting at-risk groups. Uh, looking specifically at Golden Dawn now, what did you find about why Golden Dawn's vote increased so dramatically? So the Golden Dawn is a really interesting case because, as I said earlier, it's a, it's a sort of exception to the trend that we've been seeing across Europe. And it's an exception in that, as I said, although usually what we tend to, to observe is that the parties that are sort of normalizing their discourse and distancing themselves from fascism and kind of prefer the populist label, they like to be called populist because that gives them some kind of link to the people, right? Makes them sound somewhat legitimate. The Golden Dawn was a blatantly, openly racist, neo-Nazi, violent party uh, in case your your listeners are not are not familiar, this party currently is in jail for for maintaining a criminal organization for for grievous bodily harm and and, and other charges um, and so that it, it was it was really quite shocking to see this party do so well in elections all of a sudden so I should also say this this party started off as a as a sort of grassroots movement and bulletin in the 1980s and remained marginalized in in the Greek political system it got almost nothing in terms of votes until the economic crisis erupted in, in, in Greece in uh, in the early 2010s. And so obviously the narrative there became very much of, you know, the economic crisis is what leads, uh, led people to vote for the Golden Dawn. And so then I, I did I did some research with, with some colleagues comparing Greece to other countries that had faced similar economic crisis issues, notably Spain and, and Portugal at the time, because they, they were all sort of, if you like, laggards in the European Union. They had all experienced the economic crisis, they had the highest levels of unemployment, uh, also the highest levels of youth unemployment, and yet only Greece experienced the rise of such a Nazi party. Whereas at the time, both Greece, uh, sorry, both both Spain and Portugal had 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 no rise in far right party support. So I think what, what this comparative insight showed us is that you know what was different in Greece is that the economic crisis culminated into a broader crisis of democratic representation. So what happened is that essentially citizens took away their support for the for, for the state overall. They basically believed that the state was not able to fulfill its social contract obligations and so punished the mainstream, if you like, by going completely by going completely extreme. 
I guess uh, my next question uh, sort of answered already. Uh, I was going to say the rise of Golden Dawn takes some explanation, but the fall uh, is somewhat self-evident in that all of the leadership are banged up. Could you tell us what was the case against Golden Dawn and what has been, besides the the leadership being in jail, what what has been the the flow-on impact of that? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting what happened, actually. So again, just a bit of context for you. So the, the Golden Dawn, as I said, was a, started off as a bulletin and, and a grassroots organization. Now, what that meant is that they were, you know, the, their members and their, their leading cadres, indeed, were walking on the streets and being violent. So they beat people up, they stabbed people, etc. I mean, I remember also as a, as, as a young, young girl walking around the streets of Athens, occasionally you'd bump into some, you know, Golden Dawn violence. It, it tended to be directed against either left-wing activists and or immigrants. And so this obviously continued after they had been elected. So the party uh, was very open about its, 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 uh, its violence. They would, you know, they would walk around the streets with, with clubs basically um, covered in the Greek flag and, 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 and beat people up. And, and there was a, a famous uh, murder of, uh, of, of, of an immigrant Pakistani immigrant, I think, but nothing happened. And then the whole thing escalated when Golden Dawn members killed a, a Greek left-wing activist called Pavlos Fisas. And I think that is when the whole thing sort of uh, erupted and they went to trial. It's, it's also interesting to say that, you know, the trial lasted quite a long time, a few years. So it was very protracted. And ultimately, they were indicted uh, in late 2020, as I said, for uh, maintaining a criminal organization, a grievous bodily harm murder, uh, etc. So at the moment, you know, Golden Dawn is in prison and they're not, they're not legal, they're not allowed, they're not in parliament. But there is sadly some underlying um, support that I think remains. And there have been some incidences of violence, you know, especially uh, as, at schools between left wing and, and, and sort of, you know, right wing or, you know, extreme right activists and also immigrants. So I think that there is still some underlying polarization and, and, and unfortunately, perhaps some underlying nationalist views about immigrants and, and about minorities generally that, 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 that are still supported. So although I think the Golden Dawn has indeed been eradicated, I'm not absolutely certain that the, you know, the roots of, of, of what allowed this phenomenon to take place have been eradicated. And, and, and so I think it is also important for, for Greece as a country, for us as a country, because I'm, you know, I'm Greek, to actually understand how come we how come 400,000 Greek citizens actually elected that party in the first place? You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Professor Daphne Helikiopolo about the rise and fall of Golden Dawn. Speaking of uh, Pavlos uh, Fissus, we've also recently seen the release of Georges Patalis from prison. What do you make of his release and is there any prospect of him being returned to prison? And or is this evidence of the, the courts being prepared to allow members of a criminal organisation to uh, return to the streets? Okay, sorry, I haven't followed that particular um, instance, so I might not be able to answer that. But I, but I think the broader answer, you know, if you want to link it, is, is what I said earlier, is that indeed, I mean, first, the very fact that the courts took so long, that the trial itself took so long. Second, you obviously know the situation also with the, um, the MEP, who was being chased and, yes. and they couldn't extradite him. So I think overall, what this does show is a degree of tolerance towards the far right and towards its underlying ideas. And obviously there are issues about um, how independent certain, how independent the police or certain aspects of the court system, etc., are. So I think it, do, it does, it does raise that question, you know, wh- why, 
why were they even tolerated for so long? And why did they have such, they were normalized in the media as well. They they appeared, you know, obviously the story as well, where Casidiaris, Elias Casidiaris, one of the leading members, um, slapped a, a left-wing MP on national TV. So I think all, all that illustrates a degree of tolerance there towards far right and, and its uh, its ideas. Along with uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, there's uh, misogyny and uh, homophobia on the part of the right in particular. And I'm wondering if you have anything to say about uh, the murder of uh, Zach Kostopoulos and the trial that's um, being undertaken at the moment and what that says about how the far right approaches questions of gender and, and sexuality. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, on the one hand, you know, the, the far right obviously is extremely conservative in its view of these. So obviously, it you know, it addresses these issues in a very, very hostile and, and, and very unequal way, if, if you like. But I think, again, the broader issue is not only how the far right deals with it, but how these ideas are embedded and tolerated more broadly, right? So it's not so, I, I guess what I'm getting at is that the, the, the worrying and underlying problem here is that there is a blurring between what is extreme and what is mainstream when, when it comes to, as you said, A, ideas about sexuality, but also broadly ideas about equality and diversity. And that extends into generally how we treat minorities and also how we treat Immigrants, so it also comes to the nationalism issue as well. It it reveals there is there is very limited levels of toleration broadly across the population. I don't know um, if you if you've come across the case. What was it called? The case of the play Corpus Christi. I'm not, I'm not sure if you have come across yeah, that. So I have, yeah. So this was an issue that happened in Greece a few years ago. It's a very similar idea. You know, a, a sort of a theater group wanted to put up this play, which essentially portrayed, you know, Christ and the apostles as homosexuals. And, and what was fascinating was the way that this was treated both by Golden Dawn members at the time and the broader public. So they, 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 the Golden Dawn organized sort of these mass demonstrations outside the theater where they threatened the group bodily harm and other horrendous threats. But also what was fascinated was the, the, the members of the public that were there, the church, church members and, um, you know, religious clerics, etc. And also certain police people were out there look, watching this go on, watching the Golden Dawn exert its violence and actually not do anything. So I think that really sort of encapsulates exactly the problem that, that you're talking about. I was curious what you made of uh, the appointment of Thanos Pleveris to the health ministry. It seems uh, sort of an interesting choice in the midst of a pandemic to have a minister for health who is also an anti-vaxxer. Yeah, and again, you know, this is this is not not new, and I don't think that this is specific to Greece. So countries that have, tend to have a very sharp left-right polarization tend to also have uh, these right-wing or centre-right, if you like, political parties that are large factions that include they themselves include members who are more in the centre, but also members who are more on, on the far right. Cleveris is not the only one. We have other ministers that were previously also members of Laos. Laos is the, you know, the, another far right party, the National Orthodox Rally that, that, that operated in Greece. And uh, it's again part of this problem of blurring, blurring the extreme with the mainstream, right? So there are indeed many members that not even as ministers but also as members of the of the new democracy party that 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 have blatantly and openly located themselves in the past on the on the far right spectrum they have made anti-semitic remarks as you say now they're anti-vaxxers uh, etc with the golden dawn essentially neutralized 
uh, is New Democracy now going to sort of, uh, I guess, try and take those votes back? I mean, I think it's it's, it's already sort of taking these votes back. So, so the, my book that, that that you mentioned, we did a we did a we we used um, European election study data to see who who voted for the Golden Dawn, and so what we found was that it was indeed the disillusioned right wing voter that is more likely to vote for the Golden Dawn, right? So that means that a lot of forming new democracy voters who were angry at the establishment left the centre and went more on the extreme. So what happened, obviously, after that is as the crisis conditions normalised, a lot of these people returned to new democracy. So I think, indeed, new democracy is appealing, you know, to these also voters who might have some kind of nationalist or conservative views. And as the, the very fact that it's a broad party with factions means that it, it's, what it's trying to do really is capture a coalition of voters, both those with, you know, more moderate centrist views, but also some of those who might have some more extreme uh, nationalist uh, nationalist views. We also have, what is it, the nationalist solution, I think, or um, the Greek solution, sorry, which is uh, the party of Velopoulos, but it doesn't seem to be to be doing anything groundbreaking electorally. Is there pushback within the party against, like, these this other faction? I think it's a question of everybody knows and, you know, nobody says anything about it. So the, the leader is portraying himself as a sort of more moderate and, and, and more, uh, more mainstream. And this is the formal line of the party. But then they go and appoint ministers that are clearly more on the far side. So I think it's, uh, I think it's more a strategy of doing rather than saying anything. Also, we've recently seen sort of large-scale anti-vax mobilizations in Greece, as we have seen uh, here in uh, Melbourne as well. Uh, and the far right seems to play a role. But what sort of role do they play in these mobilizations? So I, I, they haven't taken, which is interesting, I think, a concrete stance. So I think the stance varies and it's, it's more um, as part of the individual rather than it, than it is on a formal party line. And also what we see is that this this also varies across the party system, right? So there are there are members of, of every faction and of every party that, that have these anti-vax ideas. They also come from the from the left of the spectrum, they come from the right of the spectrum, and some come from even the mainstream of the spectrum, which is surprising. And also it comes for different reasons, right? So there is also a lot of uh, church reasons or religious re- reasons going on, um, saying, you know, you, you shouldn't do the vaccine, I don't know, because it's against, uh, I don't know, it's not natural. And, you know, this conspiracy theory is you'll grow a tail and be a lizard and and, and, and all these things. So I'm, I'm not so sure that it, this is necessarily exclusively a, an issue of the political spectrum, as I think it is more broadly a question of public disobedience. I'm not, I'm not sure how you would call it, but we have seen it in Greece. I, you know, I live in, I live and work in the UK, but I'm originally from Greece. So I follow the developments in both countries quite closely. And, and what I have found interesting in my comparative approach is that there's quite a difference in, in that in Greece, the anti-vax movement, I think, is stronger and more widespread and also more widespread across, as I said, different sides of the spectrum, but also different ages, you know, both genders. So it's it's an interesting phenomenon. I don't think I have an explanation for it. Speaking of the uh, political spectrum and the left, insofar as, I guess, support for the welfare state for some forms of redistribution uh, would tend to perhaps undercut the appeal of um, some elements of the far right, how have the has the left uh, fared in Greece, and how has it responded to uh, challenges by Golden Dawn and, and the far right? Well, I think two things to say here. So, so first, 
the Golden Dawn is is one of these, as I said earlier, European far right parties that is on the on the extreme part of the spectrum, openly. So, and therefore, there was a very strong cordon sanitaire against it. So, in this sense, while it was, it got a lot of attention, you know, and while it had a lot of popular support, if you like, um, it was never nobody ever wanted to play game with it in Parliament, and nobody ever really took its policies seriously, and and nobody obviously would want it um, in in a coalition government. So, in that sense, I don't think that the Golden Dawn has had a, you know, it hasn't had an an, an office impact in the way that many other more moderate, if you like, far-right European parties have had, you know, parties that appear to be more mainstream and therefore have been included in governmental coalitions, uh, Lega in Italy, Danish People's Party in in, in Denmark, um, and many others, right? So it's in this respect, parties haven't, you know, haven't necessarily clearly responded to the Golden Dawn. What it did do, similarly to some other, again, far-right European parties, is that, is that it did, it did legitimise the anti-immigrant narrative in that respect. So, so it did, it's managed to, to, to bring in this whole nationalism, anti-immigration from other parties to increase the salience of the issue. So a lot of parties are talking about it now, uh, maybe more so than before. Now, with the left itself and how it has responded, as I said, I, I don't think that it, it necessarily and particularly did something to respond to the Golden Dawn, but the Syriza, the the, the, the the sort of left-wing party that became government after the crisis, did include the independent Greeks into its coalition. The independent Greeks uh, is another populist right, if you like. So if you imagine it as a part of the spectrum, it's not like the Golden Dawn, but it is a, a right-wing populist or, or you know, or far-right party. And this party was included in the coalition government, and it did therefore have some kind of uh, some kind of, of policy impact. Um, in terms of your future research, Daphne, what are the things that you think should be paid attention to and that you're going to be researching? Yeah, thanks so much for this. So, um, so, I'm continuing to research. I find this this whole three levels very important, right? The the demand, the supply, and the policies in between. But my my research is increasingly now more about the interaction between the far right and, if you like, the centre left, or the you know the, the the party competition rather between these two these two party families. So I'm I'm doing research at the moment on on how how progressives should respond to the far right challenge and and how you know how they should shape their own narratives and their policies as a response and i think what my research so far is indicating is that this this whole idea that you know in order to defeat the far right we must in a way become the far right and 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 endorse its populist anti-immigrant narrative i think that is not a beneficial strategy for going forward i think that and that's for two reasons a because those as i said earlier the 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 voters the core voters of the far right who are anti-immigrant and 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 have these cultural grievances they won't vote for the center left anyway so these are not a viable constituency but the the broader the peripheral voters, as I call them, if you like, they have they have economic concerns, and that doesn't have to mean only the unemployed. It means a broad range of voters who are suffering from relative deprivation. And so, I think that the, the centre left party families, progressive parties, can win these voters by focusing more on inequality and on the various dimensions of, of economic grievances that 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 you know that 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 very much concern. Uh, people even within the context of, of 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 the emergence of new cleavages. So this is this is what I'm working on at the moment. Well, Daphne, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to read more of your work, you're on Twitter at Helikiopolo. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. 
Well, Andy, we'll be back next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. See you then. Victoria, as we get ready to get back out there, you need to get your COVID-19 digital certificate ready too. First, create a MyGov account if you don't have one. Then, make sure your Medicare and MyGov accounts are linked. Then, add your COVID-19 digital certificate to the Service Victoria app. Then, get ready to go. Your vaccination is your ticket to everything you love and miss. For more on adding your vaccination certificate on your smartphone, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash vaxproof. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.